Hello and welcome to Glitch Cube, we're a gaming podcast, and each week we take a deeper look into the art of video games. As always, I'm Christian. And I'm Chris. And thank you guys so much for joining us again this week as we dive into another set of video games or video game singular. Uh, today we are just going to be diving into one game that has the reputation of destroying <laughs> video games, of ending them, of creating the big crash of video games in 1983, and that is, of course, E.T. Now, if you know anything about games or you keep up with gaming culture, you know the name E.T. This game is synonymous of being the biggest failure in video game history of all time. But was it really that bad? And was it even, did it even get a chance to be a good game? Let's, we're going to be diving into that today as we kind of go through the story of how E.T. was created, some of the background stories of the creator themselves, of Atari, what they were going through a little bit there, and what came of this horrible, catastrophic failure of a game. Well, quote unquote failure. <laughs> it does have a 1.2 rating out of 10, so that's pretty bad. I've never seen a game that low before, but it kind of makes sense for the time frame and the issues that this game had anyway so it kind of felt like this game was set up for failure from the beginning but i actually just recently watched a full playthrough of the atari et video game and uh yeah it's not great <laughs> it's actually pretty boring uh, there's not really much going on there but before i kind of dive into the gameplay mechanics before the story itself uh, what's your take on the E.T. legend, this legacy that has been passed down through video game history? I think the boring part of it is not so much E.T.'s fault and just the Atari in general, but um, <laughs> it... So I remember hearing this, like, so it feels like so long ago um, that I remember hearing about it, and it's... It's always been a game that's intrigued me just because of the legend behind it. I never really understood why it got crapped on as bad as it did. Um, I definitely think the whole landfill story definitely added like mm -hmm. intrigue to it. But it's when you look at it, it doesn't look that different from a lot of other Atari games. And this is coming from someone who didn't grow up with Atari. I I was the generation kind of after, but definitely the generation after the NES. So, like, two generations later is when I really got in the games. So, me looking back at Atari, it's kind of like, oh. Yeah. Like, that's a little old. You know, like, when you look at games back then, it's kind of like, hmm, this is it. So when I look at E.T., I'm like, this doesn't look like this. This looks like all the other Atari games, you know, maybe not like Raiders of the Lost Ark or some of the other like highly regarded Atari games. Like there are some that really look like they're pushing the system mm -hmm. for what it was worth. You know, like Atari's old. It's like early 80s. You know, it's it's interesting. But this game, I'm like, oh, this you know like by the time i really started looking into the game i've played so many crappy games through steam and stuff i'm like 
this game doesn't seem as bad. You know, there's definitely worse games. But to think being around in the early 80s, 82, when this came out, and, you know, it's holidays, you're getting your game, you know, like, games were expensive. Mm-hmm. Especially even back then with Atari, it was expensive. And uh, imagine getting this under your Christmas tree. <laughs> yeah. Or like, you know, your dad comes back from the store like, hey, I got a game for you. And you're like, oh, what is it? Oh, it's based off of that movie you love. And you're like, oh, cool. You play it and you're like, God, this is awful. Mm-hmm. You know, like back then they didn't have the internet to like find stuff out. They didn't. It's, it must have been such a weird time for that, you know, because the game industry was completely different than what it is now. You know, I would have loved to just been around to see like what it was like just in general, but during this whole fiasco, it must have been crazy. Yeah, it's, it's kind of crazy to think, but I mean, like the ET game was slightly groundbreaking at that time uh during this time we had games like pong and very simple style games where it was two colors on the screen one thing moving at a time not really much going on it was very simplistic graphics and these these style games were really pushing the envelope they were giving us more to explore and inspired basically every single game that came after it because we realize that we can do a lot more with it. We don't have to just have one screen. We can have multiple screens connected by the edges of the screen themselves. So it was it was really groundbreaking in that sense. And then when you look at the fact that this is a video game based on a movie, now that's a very common trope nowadays, especially with Lego video games and things like that. Licensed games are not new. But during this time, there was only one other licensed video game made, and that was Raiders of the Lost Ark. And that game got critical acclaim. It was said to be an amazing Atari game, probably one of the best Atari games, according to a lot of people. And that was actually designed by Howard Scott Warshaw, who inevitably made the E.T. video game as well. So Warshaw has a kind of an interesting history here where He coins himself in an NPR interview that he was always in a rush, even as a kid. He couldn't wait to grow up. He couldn't wait to become a designer, like to retire at the age of 30. Like he wanted to get through school and life fast. And because of that, he said he developed a pretty massive ego that he could take on any challenge and just make it work and continue on. So in... 1981, he ends up getting hired for um, at Atari as a game designer. And during that time, like I said, a lot of the games were just Pong. It was simple games. And he comes out with Yar's Revenge, which at that time was a huge, huge undertaking where you're a mutant spacefly trying to kill giant monsters across the screen. I think you're uh, Gattaga's, but left to right, not up to down, right? And it's that kind of thought process, that kind of gaming and those visuals where he says that he wanted everything to move, to light up, to be alive on the screen. And that was very groundbreaking for the game scene. 
So, of course, Atari gets approached because Atari was the biggest game company during this time due to the Atari 2600. It was in every household. Uh, that was just the game system to have. It was an entertainment center for families. Uh, they get approached by, uh, yeah, they get approached to make the actual Raiders of the Lost Ark game. Spielberg went to them and said it would be a really great idea to do this. So, Warshaw gets put on the task. Uh, it takes him about, I think, 12 months to create it. So he took about a year to make this game. And whenever Spielberg game tested it, he said, this is amazing. This is just like I watched the movie. Now, when you look at the game, I wouldn't say that <laughs> <laughs> nowadays. But at the time, this is really amazing, innovative stuff. So, of course, by the time when Spielberg creates E.T., which is the next blockbuster hit, he wants to do the same thing he did with Raiders. So they approach Warshaw again. Uh, Spielberg went to Warshaw directly and asked him to make a E.T. video game. And, of course, Warshaw said, yes, I would love to do this. So this is where things get kind of convoluted and where the issues begin to arise. Because there apparently is a huge legal battle between Spielberg and Atari as to what can actually be released in the game, what can be there, like what what do the assets that they have available, who's getting majority of the money, those kind of issues come up. So by the time Warshaw gets his hands on it, he has five weeks to make the game hmm. to meet the deadline of Christmas. So that was part of the actual, uh, the the rule set forward by Spielberg for Atari to be able to make this title uh, is that it has to be out by Christmas uh, to match with the release of the movie so that everything goes smoothly and they make the most profit from it uh, so that the game movie doesn't get forgotten by the time the game comes out, right? So it just makes sense. But I think it's kind of, crazy that Spielberg is the one that approached Atari and then also created the issues that they faced to make this game happen. So five weeks is not a very long time to make a game, but Warshaw being the kind of cocky man that he was, when they asked if he could do it, he said, yes, of course I can do this. No problem. So apparently he rented an apartment at that time and he locked himself in for five weeks straight to make this game happen. Uh, he made it so that hmm. he had nothing else, no distractions, nothing just to make this game real <laughs> to actually make it come out. So once it was made, he ends up meeting with Spielberg and showing the game. And Spielberg had a very interesting reaction to it. So he just kind of looked at the game apparently, played it a little bit, and then looked at Warshaw and said, couldn't you just have done something like pac-man <laughs> so definitely a different reaction than the raiders game originally where spielberg absolutely loved the raiders game claiming it felt just like the movie and yeah so it's kind of funny that it went down that direction so warshaw was obviously annoyed by it and in the interview he said that um he wished that he could have told spielberg uh couldn't you have just made another war of the worlds when talking about E.T. So it's kind of funny that he wanted to, you know, lash out against him uh, for talking crap about the game. Because I get it. Like, he spent five weeks of his life every waking moment 
making this happen to meet this crazy deadline that just, you know, was not possible. So Mm -hmm. during this time as well, Atari starts kind of losing money. Uh, They are apparently living a very rock star lifestyle, which was very common for the gaming industry at that time. There was a lot of drugs. There was a lot of booze. There was a lot of partying. Uh, We saw that a lot with id Software as well, with Doom. Like that mindset was just around. They were the rebels of media. They were the rebels of community or, or computer science, and they wanted to explore that avenue. They wanted to be rock stars in media, so they spent a lot of money that they did not have. So Atari's in trouble, right? And they're hoping that E.T. is going to bring back Atari, bring it back to what it once was. So Christmas time comes around and they spend a lot of money on advertisements to get this game out there and probably too much money. (laughs) And they also printed so many copies of this game. They actually printed a million copies of E.T., because they expected to sell that much due to, you know, Raiders. And they were being very ambitious and hopeful uh, because no game has sold that much right off the bat. And it did incredibly well for the pre-sales. This was under pretty much every Christmas tree. This was the game to buy. They sold so much, they kept selling out, actually. But then about three weeks after the release, that's when the issues started coming in. They had so many returns that now E.T. is in a negative deficit. Basically, almost every copy of E.T. that got sold got returned. So it was pretty Mm. crazy to think that. And if you're a business that's running a rock and roll lifestyle, right, when you see when you get a sale, you are instantly getting money. So you're going to be spending that money. But then three weeks later, when the game gets returned, you now owe that money to the retailer. So where does this money? Yeah, it's it's tough. It's a tough thing to deal with. It happens all the time. And that's the money's gone. So that's where Atari really, really starts falling through, which actually inevitably leads to the most epic video game crash of 1983. So a lot of people say that E.T. is the reason for the video game crash, not the fact that Atari was not you know, spending their money wisely and thinking about the long run of things, but it was due to the failure of one video game that got made in five weeks. So it's kind of unfair to put E.T. in that, in, in like blaming E.T. completely for this, even though it's yeah. really not a good game at all. <laughs> it's really, really bad. But then I think the big part of this, like you mentioned earlier, is the landfill story. So there's a lot of documentaries and a lot of books written about how there's a million copies of E.T. buried in a landfill in New Mexico. And that that's what Atari did to kind of just get rid of it and try to make people forget about this game. Well, yes, there are a lot of copies in that landfill of E.T., but it wasn't just E.T. that was there. It was a lot of Atari products because they had no way of selling their products. Nobody wanted to buy them. Uh, nobody wanted to buy their games, their consoles, all that stuff. So instead of just sitting on it because they couldn't store it in the warehouses anymore, they didn't have money for that, they had to just throw it away. Their money was completely gone. 
So a lot of product ended up in that landfill. It wasn't just them trying to bury E.T. like the stories want to tell you, which is kind of funny. But it is nice. It is an interesting thing to put into the lore itself. And it does make it kind of epic and grand and like you're going on a crazy adventure to find this elusive product, right? It is kind of funny to think about that. It's interesting. I'm kind of like looking over to see like what else came out that year, like around ET to kind of see like how I want to see like, you know, what else, if there was anything good or bad that came that year. And honestly, 82, it seemed like it, it was a pretty strong year for some decent games for the time. I'm like kind of surprised, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting how 82 seemed like it had a lot going for it. Yeah. I mean, we had Pitfall, um, Donkey Kong Jr., right? Yeah, Saturn. yeah. You got Gravadar. You got Cosmic Arc, which actually looks really nice for an Atari game. Like, to me, Dig I feel Dug. like there's more it's on it. Game. Oh, shit. That's right. Ding Dug. Joust. Yeah, Joust came out in 82. I gotta say, like, the, gra- the, the, the box too. art for Atari games are just the best part oh they're stellar except for the Mega Man one that one's hilarious but (laughs) oh yeah the uh i gotta say it's interesting when you get a game like a et when the game adventure came out two years before and a lot of people say that's like one of the biggest adventure games Mm -hmm. of the time you know it's it's interesting what people could do back then with the hardware they were given yeah. Oh, Atlantis came out that year too. Yeah, they really pushed the boundaries and there was a lot of crazy games coming out, but <laughs> at the same time you got to think that a lot of these games took months to develop, not years. Whereas nowadays mm-hmm. it's games could be in, you know, development hell where it takes 10 years for a game to come out. I mean, look at Two Human, right? Two Human was originally supposed to come out on the N64 but didn't come out all the way until the Xbox 360. So that's how long that game went through development hell because they kept changing things around. And I think that's one of the biggest things that we have found when researching a lot of failed games is that people want to use the newest engine, but that means that you have to remake your game every single time. So it's probably a good idea to just stick with what you got. Just keep going with that and just have the game release when you want it to or when it's supposed to. So it's, it is kind of interesting to hear those kind of things and trying to think of another game, especially modern game that has failed on this level. It's kind of hard to really think of one uh, because we haven't had a video game crash since, at least not on the the level of this. And there's no real game that can kind of, I don't think there's a single game out there that if it went down today, would affect the gaming industry as a whole. No, I, if there was something that affected the industry as a whole, I think it would be, it would have to be something that is very controversial. You know, like I feel like when, like I remember it's weird. A lot of these modern games that fail, I feel like they're the only games I've ever pre-ordered recently. Mm -hmm. Like no man's sky got that day one you know (laughs) cyberpunk day one and it's interesting because it's like i was kind of like 
I've been watching Edge Runners, so I've been kind of like looking back at Cyberpunk, which I mean, I beat. I bought it day one. I beat it within a week. I actually liked it, but I forget that it was announced in 2012. Oh, God. Which was still PlayStation 3 era, right? Yeah. Like, right at the end. Like, PS4 came out 2013. So, Cyberpunk was teased in 2012, and all it was just a title screen, right? Nothing really on it. Uh, we didn't really see, I think, any video until 2018. Um, That's crazy. And it was like a just a graphic, you know, like a cinematic trailer. And then, you know, it comes out 2012 or 2020. So eight years later, you know, from PS3 to basically end of PS4 life, you know, it's. I'm not one of those people that's going to brag on cyberpunk. Like, I don't think it deserves all the hate that it got. I understand why people were mad because so much was promised. Mm-hmm. You know, not only did people expect something like Witcher 3, but you know, in this setting, but the amount of stuff that they promised throughout the almost decade development that it had wasn't promised. And I mean, people still to this day hate it. I think a lot more people are coming around to it because it's slowly getting fixed. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people thought that this game would be the next, like, detrimental game like for the time but nothing is ever gonna be so bad that it will crash the game market you know you think back in the 80s where gaming consoles were going up against you know arcades right and it makes sense that you know oh if this game sucks why not just go to an arcade nowadays you know we have the console wars but when you think about it, like nowadays we don't really have that competition. You know, now that consoles and PCs are kind of blurring their lines together, it they don't seem as far apart as they used to. You know, mm-hmm. you look at the personal computers of the 80s and it looks like miles and miles better than an Atari console right like the the specs everything it was there was a difference and i think it wasn't until maybe like two or three years ago that the advancement of the pc that that lead it's got over consoles is just going down and down like maybe if you want the latest greatest ray tracing graphics everything like what they're gonna do with the new uh NVIDIA graphics cards is insane. Mm-hmm. Like how they're how you can basically update graphics for any old game from Direct X nine. That's crazy. And up. Like it, it's insane how Morrowind looks. Like I'm like, what the fuck? But the we just don't have that competition anymore. We don't have that worry. Like this industry makes so much money. The worst thing that could ruin is like, oh, well, gaming television kind of sucks. But like, mm-hmm. you know, it even that is getting fixed. Like it the game industry has changed since that time. Mm-hmm. You know, every decade it goes through an evolution. And now we're at the point where gaming is such a household name or household hobby that like 
it, it's never going to be destroyed or taken away. Well, look, I mean, it, even Blizzard, one of the biggest gaming companies in the world, was going through a huge controversial thing and mm-hmm. basically losing everything where they're going to be potentially bought out by Microsoft now. And if that happened in the 80s, this would be a huge thing where like video games are dead. But now like Blizzard's not really like the games aren't going away. People are still playing games. The industry is so huge that it's just one company out of hundreds and thousands of companies. So it's not really having the same impact that it would have in the 80s. So I, even something as huge as the Blizzard controversy and the Activision stuff, right? All that, all those things, it's not enough to affect gaming the way that it this did in the 80s. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's it is pretty insane. But talking about failures and so Warshaw, man, Warshaw really tried to he really turned it around. I will say this. So he completely failed at, in this game, and he actually lost his job in Atari due to this, uh, because hmm. Atari was doing a lot of budget cuts. They kind of put the blame on ET fully, so they're also uh, like responsible for making ET seem like the hugest failure out there. So Warshaw ended up losing his his job there as a game designer, and he never went back to game designing. He went around, jumped uh, between like real estate, some videography, just little gigs here and there for about a decade. And then eventually he became a therapist and he is now known as the therapist, the Silicon Valley therapist, where he actually helps out a lot of uh, tech moguls, a lot of startup companies. Uh, he, you know, has his own website, so you can check it out. It's hswarshaw.com, where he, you know, talks about the help that he can provide people because he knows how brutal Silicon Valley can be. He knows how brutal the tech industry can be and how a simple hiccup in things or a, a little bit of overconfidence can really destroy your life in the tech industry. So he, he actually did something really interesting that way where he took this failure and turned it around. And now he's potentially helping out a lot of other game makers and tech moguls and things like that. And people like that, that to get through their failures and to continue on with their lives, which is really interesting. I mean, kudos for him. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a good turnaround story, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, what makes E.T. such a bad game? Whenever you really look at the game itself, like and like you said, E.T. does not look different than any other Atari game that was coming out in this time. It looks exactly the same. It has a blockbuster hit movie behind it. It has memorable characters that they can pull from to make this game successful. So why did it fail so badly? Well, obviously, the five-week turnaround was a huge detriment to the designing of this game. So the game got shipped out with a lot of bugs, uh, a lot of game-breaking bugs even, too, where you can get stuck uh, pretty horribly and pretty frequently on, <laughs> in this title. <laughs> but the it was mainly due to the fact that the game never actually got play-tested. So within that five-week period, they basically were creating the game up to the deadline itself. So there was no time to play test the title at all to catch any of these game-breaking bugs. 
because five weeks is not a long time at to do this. So, and it is kind of a shame. And it was just Warshaw by himself. So one man, five That's weeks crazy. making a game, a blockbuster hit game. Of course, there's going to be problems with it. Now, the other thing about it is that it's just kind of boring. There really isn't that much put into the game itself because there just wasn't time to do that. So the entire ET game is comprised of six different screens. You have four screens that have uh, holes that you can go down to find different phone pieces. So the whole point of the game is that you are trying to phone home. So in order to do that, you need to collect pieces of the phone to then construct it and, you know, call for your ship to pick you up. That's the whole point of the game. And while you're doing that, you're collecting little blips. So it's little tiny pixels that happen to be the same color as the holes in the ground. So it's a little confusing. But those pixels are Reese's Pieces, <laughs> as coined in the actual instruction manual. And you pick up various pieces of candy along the way to keep your score up. So every time you walk, your score goes down a little bit. And you need to make sure that you don't hit zero before collecting all the phone pieces and stuff like that. So that is kind of the point of ET. And that's the main mechanic there. Now, while you're trying to collect your phone pieces, there are detectives, uh, FBI agents, and there are scientists that are trying to catch ET. So at any point in time, whenever you're on a screen that has some wells for you to go down to find your phone pieces, then a scientist or agent can show up to pick up E.T. and take him to Washington, D.C. So Washington, D.C. is if you go down on a screen, you go to Washington, D.C. from any screen except for the forest scene. So any one of the ones with the wells, if you go down, you go to Washington. And that's where the agents are trying to take you. If you have candy, then you can use the candy apparently as lives in a sense, to get out of Washington and continue on your journey. Now, it's just, there's that, that's really it. <laughs> that's the game. <laughs> um, and the big thing that was probably the most confusing part for people playing the game is, I mean, there were no guides, and the internet wasn't around for at least another decade. So there was no way of people looking up these things or chatting in forums about the game itself. So there was no hand-holding. And really, all the information that you needed was in the instruction manual. So that was a very common thing in games during this time, was the instruction manual had little hints, uh, explanations of the symbols uh, in the games and what your ultimate goal is, how you do your powers and controls, all that fun stuff. So if you didn't read the instruction manual, which a lot of kids didn't, because why would you want to read when you just want to play your video game? They didn't know what to do, and they didn't know what the symbols actually meant. So once you actually collect all of your phone pieces, you have to locate the spot on one of the four screens in order to phone home. And the only way to do that is to walk around the screen itself. And then eventually, the symbol at the top of the screen will change to a little spaceship symbol. And you have to remember where that is across these four screens in order to go back once you have the phone pieces to then phone home. Once you do that, a timer starts. And then you have to make your way up to the forest before the timer ends and find the pickup spot in the forest as well, which you find it the same exact way you find the spaceship location. You just wander across that screen until the simple changes. And if you happen to be in that spot when the timer runs out, then the spaceship comes down and takes you to safety. 
Ta-da, that's easy. <laughs> that's the that easy. sounds rough. Yeah, <laughs> it's pretty bad. <laughs> so while the game is very boring, because obviously five weeks is not a lot of time to make these things happen, there are a lot of glitches and issues with the gameplay itself because you can play test it. So the wells, you just hop down into the well. It goes to a different scene or screen, which is the well screen, which you will find a phone piece if you happen to go down the correct well. Uh, and when you're down there, you grab the piece and then you float back up. Now, depending on the way that you entered the well from the previous screen, you pop back where you were, but you're, there could be some pixels of ET overlapping the well, and then you end up in an infinite loop where you're constantly lifting up and going back down into the hole. And <laughs> it's a very game-breaking bug. There's a few other glitches as well where E.T. has a special power where he can make the agents and the scientists run away from him, where if they if you do it in the right spot, the agent has a really high chance of becoming glitched, where he gets stuck at the bottom of the screen instead of leaving the screen like he's supposed to. And you can actually walk right through him where he can't do anything with to you anymore. So it's just kind of like eh, there goes the threat, right? So there's really not much to that. And it's just due to the fact that, like I said, lack of playtesting. And it's just a boring game. <laughs> there really isn't anything to this. You can beat the game in less than like 10 minutes. So imagine those that actually did read the instruction manual when they got it for Christmas. Your kid, you're just opening this thing up. You're so excited to play the E.T. game. You just watched the movie. You absolutely love it. You're obsessed with the idea. And 10 minutes later, you beat the game. Congrats. Or 30 seconds into it, you find a game-breaking bug and you're stuck in an infant loop with the well. That's frustrating. And so that's why yeah. people absolutely coin this as a horrible, horrible game because of stuff like that. And it's so funny to encounter game-breaking bugs. Um, like back then, a game-breaking bug meant you had to restart the entire console, do everything, right? Like maybe even take out the cartridge. You don't know that it's a game-breaking bug. It could be a feature, right? There's no real way of telling that things are going wrong. Maybe you're trying to get out of the well for 10 minutes and you just can't. Like it would be an incredibly frustrating situation. Whereas now we encounter a lot of game-breaking bugs in our games and it's quick restarts. It's nothing on the level of this where it's, it's shut down everything entirely and turned back, right? Like it, I think yeah. that's why it, it, yeah, the, the, it just became more of an event. It became more of a spectacle to fail in this title and in titles of that age where every game breaking bug was really memorable. Like, I mean, for instance, recently playing Cult of the Lamb, I absolutely love that game, but I encountered a lot of game-breaking gut bugs where I had to reset back to the title screen and come back in, but my save state was right where I left off. So it wasn't like I really lost anything. I might have been kicked out of a dungeon, but it's not that big of a deal. Whereas this is, you start fresh every time you turn the game on. There isn't where you come back to the game and you have six of the seven phone pieces or however many there are, and you can just continue on your journey and you're outside of the well and you're good to go. It's a complete restart every single time you do it. So it's, it is a lot more noticeable <laughs> and a lot more detrimental to the gameplay itself. But yeah, coming from like a gameplay perspective, there 
this game's not great. <laughs> There's really nothing to it, which is, it's, yeah, it's rough. It's rough to deal with. Ugh. Game breaking bro- bugs. Jeez, that's kind of hard to say. Um, they, for the time, you know, like you said, like there was no way you could save, you know, and I, I don't even think the Atari didn't have any games that could save anyway, but it was like, you know, it's <laughs> nowadays we don't really have to worry about game ba- breaking bugs unless it like crashes the whole, you know, computer mm-hmm. or the console. Like those do exist. Like I know, what was it? There was one recently like maybe like a few years ago that it could actually brick your console oh that's right i forgot about what the xbox stuff too there was a lot of issues on the xbox where there are certain games that totally brick your game yeah there was there was one it like it did something and i know it would brick your hard drive like if you had an external plugged in mm. to your ps4 it would brick it and i can't remember what it was but that's so like those are the ones that we that's what we deal with nowadays but thankfully those usually get patched like pretty quickly i uh Mm -hmm. i remember when i got the ps5 in the beginning if you left the game in rest mode uh there was a chance it would brick your console um jeez i remember i think it was for demon souls if you left it on rest mode because the game doesn't pause, you know, it's a Souls game. Um, if you left on rest mode, there was a chance that when you booted it up, it would just not work because it would brick. Um, and that was, that didn't get patched for probably a whole month or two. That's a long time. But wait. it was also for Spider-Man. Like that was just one of the first big bugs that PS5 had. Um, but I know other consoles have had stuff kind of similar where there's like a possible bug that could just destroy your whole thing. You know, that's nowadays that's what we have. And, you know, nowadays it's also different where if something sucks or it's broken, you know, Twitter, social media, anything will just be bombarded about it. You know, it's a virtual landfill mm-hmm. you know to an extent and yeah it's it's kind of crazy to think all the way back in the 80s like something like this kind of happened you know and it's a game like this you know you didn't have really anyone to talk to about it you just kind of you played it you hated it and then you were stuck with it mm-hmm. well it's the thing too like we call it game breaking bugs but nowadays that's not a thing there is no such thing as a game breaking bug because of how fast they patch things. Like they can always send out a new patch for titles. The term game breaking bug came from the eighties, came from these Atari games that literally broke the game. You cannot continue playing. You cannot go back to it. It, We should call it like a game pausing bug, right? Or just like (laughs) a roadblock in your game itself or something like that, because it's going to get patched. It's going to get fixed. Um, nine times out of ten unless developers have given up on the game completely but back then those game breaking issues just stayed there was no way to patch these games and there was no re-release the cartridge with the fixes they didn't do that there was no money in that it was a waste to (laughs) to develop those kind of things when a game was done that was it and the designers went to a new title that's the cycle of game designers back then where now 
with the games the way they are now, with everything being digital, all that stuff, we have designers who are on the game or they make the games and then they have a team that is keeping up with the game throughout its lifetime. So there's always going to be an IT department to fix the issues that are coming up because we can pump out fixes via the internet. But that wasn't a thing back then. So yeah, like if you encountered something that completely made it so progress was not possible, well, it's trash. There's nothing that they can do. So that's why a lot of these games ended up in the landfill because for most people that didn't know the little trick of how to properly enter the wells, that there was no way of progressing. There was no way of actually finishing the game at all. So that's it's just garbage at that point, which sucks. <laughs> it's a little unfortunate. But failure is a good thing. We learn a lot from failed systems and failed games and just failing in general in life because through that, we have found out that, I mean, playtesting is incredibly important. Right. Mm-hmm. Creating a valid deadline is super important. Checking your ego at the door is essential for any business that you're working in, whether it's game design or not, especially in the creative industry. And we as a designer, I think it's super important to look back at the games that failed, not because it's funny, but to actually learn why did this game fail? What was the main underlying issue here? And I think the main underlying issue for E.T. was just time. There really wasn't enough time to actually make this game possible. Five weeks is an impossible amount of time to make a blockbuster hit. It's about, It was enough time to come up with a concept for a game, but not an actual full-fledged game. So we've learned and we've extended deadlines. We've made it the development cycle longer in games where now it could even span decades, which is too long, but it is something that we are learning from. And it, it shows, it actually helped us grow as an industry and continue on the way we are. And that's why we have games that we do now. That's why we have our huge titles, our Final Fantasies, like even Final Fantasy 15 took over 10 years to make. People forget about that. The very first trailer that came out was Trains in Space. And then we got something completely different. But yeah, it was it was a weird like 30 second teaser trailer, but they completely gutted that idea, changed it and made what we have now. Is it a better game? Eh, sorry. But <laughs> but it's the thought that counts. And the fact that we're continuously evolving and learning from the failures of the past. That is the most important thing to take away from this. And do I blame E.T. for the game crash of 1983? No, I don't. I don't think this is... I don't think that this should be the reason for that or what we pass the blame on or even coined as the worst game in history. It's, it's just the... I think really it was just the hubris of the designers and of Atari at the time that led to the failure. It was the lack of knowledge of how long it actually takes to make a really good product. And the too small of a development team where one person cannot make a game. You need a team to do that, to bounce ideas off of, to know when things break, and we need a playtest. That is the hugest uh, thing to come from this, I would say. But anyway, I think with that, I think that's going to do it for us this week. Thank you guys so much for listening in. And we will talk to you next week with our next set of games. But until then, bye for now.
Thank you.